0: Go ahead and take a seat. I'll break from the. Oh, he's breaking from norm. I'll break from the norm today, because I do want to introduce the text before we read it. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back after being out of the pulpit for a few weeks. Um, I had a, an amazing, unforgettable time in Deutschland. I got to meet people from all over the world. I got to sing some wonderful music. Hear some great preaching, and also I got to hang out with one of my heroes. Um, so, uh, two weeks from now, I will present a report to you all about my visit in Germany, and it will include um, uh, information and pictures about the church plant we're supporting, and also I'll share with you some, some pictures and some stories about my time in Wittenberg. So, please, plan to be here two weeks from now if you're in town. Now, at this time, I invite you to take God's word and open it to Mark chapter one, Mark chapter one. If you're visiting or if it's the first time you've been here in a while or if you have been here one or more of the past three Sundays, you are here today at a perfect Lord's Day. Because we are at the very outset of the beginning of a verse by verse exposition of the gospel of Mark. Up to this point, we've had two introductory messages Looking at the background of Mark and the life of John the Baptizer. Who came to prepare the way for the promised Messiah. Today we want to look at verses 9 through 11. Where we discover how Jesus began his earthly ministry. The title of the message today is the unveiling of the Messiah. The unveiling of the Messiah. Let's begin by reading these verses We are about to examine Mark 1 verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. In this account, we read about the official public presentation of God incarnate. Up until this point, Jesus the Messiah was simply known as Jesus of Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter. He was known as the son of Joseph and Mary. He was an average Joe living the mundane, normal life of a first-century Hebrew. He was out of the spotlight up until now. He was out of the public light. But now, at the appointed time and moment, he steps out of the obscurity of Nazareth and into the public eye to begin his three-year world-changing ministry. Now is the time he begins his long Arduous dramatic walk to the cross to die for the sins of those who will believe Now is the time he begins three years of preaching About the kingdom of god and vindicating that preaching with miraculous works of divine power Now as a reminder The primary theme of this gospel is to present jesus as the suffering servants So keep that in mind as we're going through this book verse by verse. Mark wants to present Jesus as a suffering servant to a Gentile audience. No servant can serve God without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same for you, and even it was the same for Christ himself. This is the clear teaching of the baptism of Jesus, where he begins his public ministry. His ministry starts with him being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus, being fully God and fully man at the same time, must have been anointed by the Spirit. If he was to faithfully fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father. Now this text applies to you and I in a massive way. If Jesus needed to be empowered by the spirit at the very beginning of his ministry, then how much more do you and I need to be filled with the spirit if we're going to take one step out into the world and into our home to fulfill the ministry that God has called you to do? In other words, if Jesus needed the Spirit before he could launch into the world and fulfill his his messianic office, you and I simply need the Spirit to do life. You need the Spirit to do anything. Every single one of us desperately needs the life-giving zeal and strength that only the Spirit can provide if, You want to see blessing from God upon your life and ministry. That's why we just sang that hymn this this morning. That wonderful, Holy Spirit-centered hymn. And so even before we get to dive into this text, you already prayed through your singing for the Spirit to give you life. And now through the preaching of the Word, may the Lord Jesus Christ... God the Father, the Holy Spirit, give you this zeal this morning. It was true for Jesus. And it's true for you today. So, as we look at these three verses, I want you to take note of how this pivotal moment in the life of Christ unfolds. It unfolds in three abrupt actions. One for each verse. The appearing of the Son in verse 9. The anointing by the Spirit in verse 10. And the affirmation of by the Father and verse 11. Notice how Trinitarian this verse is. Not only is this portion of Scripture heavy application-wise, but it's also a very doctrinal passage. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all present simultaneously here. And it's good for you to observe that. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is an essential fundamental truth of our faith and you need to ground yourself in that because there are a lot of cults and a lot of false religions that deny the trinity in some way our god is triune and we believe in one god three distinct persons equal in essence different in function if you want a very simple way to define who god is he is one god three persons equal in essence Different in function. Elementary way to define the Trinity. During today's exposition, we'll not only see the need to possess the Spirit's power, but you'll also become sanctified and encouraged and educated by seeing how our triune God had worked in the life of Christ. Now let's begin at verse 9. The appearing of the Son. That is what verse 9 sets before us. Take a note. Take a look. Take a look at how it begins. Verse 9 begins within those days. Now, stop right there for a second. What are those days? It's the time of John's ministry. A time when all Judea and Jerusalem was flocking out to the wilderness to hear John's preaching. It was at the height of his popularity. As you recall from the previous messages in Mark, hopefully, remember the previous message... uh, in those messages how verse 5 tells us that all of the country of Judea was going out to him and all of the people of Jerusalem were being baptized by him. And so here we see that Jesus, the Son of God himself, comes to join the large crowds the days, in the days of John's popularity and John's, the, the pinnacle of John's ministry. Jesus comes and joins the crowd who are being immersed in water. Now, in verse 9 again, Mark continues to say, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, we're going to camp out here in this phrase because there's a lot in here, believe it or not. This phrase implies that up until the days of John, Jesus had not left the residence where he was raised. As you recall, Nazareth was the place where Joseph, his earthly father, lived and worked as a carpenter. Nazareth was a very insignificant village, so much so that the Old Testament does not mention it, nor does Josephus, the famed Jewish historian, nor do any rabbinical teachings mention Nazareth. And it was this unimportant town where Jesus grew up into manhood. The town was about 70 miles north of Jerusalem, which was, as you know, the center of the Jewish religion. Nazareth was off the beaten path. It was out of the spotlight. It was far away from the elite religious establishment. It was a small, out-of-the-way place, inhabited by a large population of Gentiles because of what? Because of the Assyrian infiltration 700 years before Christ. So not only was Nazareth obscure and insignificant, but listen to this, it was despised, disdained. John one forty six records Nathanael's response to Philip after being told that he had found the one the Old Testament prophesied about. Remember? Nathanael said to Philip, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, of course, we know the answer is a resounding yes. The very best thing has come out of Nazareth, amen? But to the first century Judeans, the town was looked down upon with disgust. It was the wrong side of the track, so to speak. Now, most of you know that I originally come from a small town in northern Illinois, about 45 miles south of Chicago. Now, when I tell people this, oftentimes I'm asked about the unique food or historic landmarks the Windy City has to offer. But when I struggle to give specific answers about Chicago-style pizza or whatever it is, people are surprised of my lack of knowledge about the Chicago area, given the fact that I spent my first 18 years there. Well, there's a reason why I don't have a lot of knowledge about Chicago. It's because I can count on one hand how many times I actually went there. And it was for a reason. You see, I grew up in a small farming town that consisted predominantly of German and Irish farmers. Conservative uh, German and Irish farmers. And we lived south south of the city, as I've said. So, which means to get to downtown Chicago, where the historic landmarks are located, where the touristy places are, you either have to drive through the south side or around it. And nobody ever wanted to do that, because the south side of Chicago is notoriously known for crime, poverty, violence, gang activity and racism. And because of that reputation, no blue-collar farmer would have even thought much about going to Chicago at all unless he really had to. It was because we disdained them. If you were from the South Side of Chicago, you were disdained. So in the very same way, that's how the people in Jesus' time viewed Nazareth. And so you can see why Nathaniel gave that response he gave, right? Why would the Son of God come from a place where everyone hated? They expected the Messiah to come from Jerusalem. Not some dirty, podunk town that nobody likes. But isn't it just like God to confound human expectations? By planting Jesus in a town called Nazareth to grow up, where seemingly nothing else had ever grown, God stunned everyone. But more than that, as one commentator noted, The fact that the Messiah came from an insignificant village in a humble region on the fringes of Jewish society was in itself not only a blow to the average Jew. But it was in itself a rebuke to the corrupt religious system that dominated Judaism at the time. It would have offended, that would have offended deeply the Pharisees and Sadducees. To think that their king is from a place that is despised. Now the application here should be obvious. God is in the business of doing things and growing things at the precise time and the precise place where he chooses, not where man expects. God can take the most unimportant place... Using the most unimportant person and do the most earth-shaking thing. All of this truth, we simply extract it of understanding the significance of Jesus coming from Nazareth. Don't you love expository preaching? Now go to back, go back to verse nine. Upon leaving his hometown permanently at the age of thirty. Jesus now steps into the spotlight, and the first thing he does is get publicly baptized. Mark goes on to say in verse 9, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Again, the Greek word is baptizo, meaning to be immersed, to be dipped or dunked or submerged under or beneath the water. Just like the rest of the people who are coming from all over the map, The Son of God was not sprinkled. He was fully immersed in the Jordan River. Verse 10 says that he came up out of the water. Now, here's the million dollar question. Why? Why did Jesus get baptized? We know that he was sinless, right? And therefore he had no sin to confess. He had no need to repent of anything, did he? Well, even John was confused. Remember in Matthew 3, verse 14, John tried to prevent Jesus from getting baptized, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? John said, because John knew fully well that Jesus was holy and spotless and undefiled, without sin and therefore he could not fathom Jesus wanted to be baptized by a sinner. So why does Jesus get baptized? The answer is very simple. And there's no need to debate it. Matthew 3:15 provides the answer explicitly. It says to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus got baptized to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, if God was going to impute the perfect righteousness of Jesus onto sinners through faith, then Jesus needed to be baptized. What makes it possible for you to stand in the presence of God and live is the 100% complete Imputation of Christ's righteousness. In other words, at the moment of your justification, Christ's perfect life, that he merited through perfect obedience to the law, is credited to your account. And your imperfect, sinful life dies in Christ on the cross. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So when you are justified by faith, you are legally declared righteous in God's sight. Amen? Now, where does that righteousness come from? Does it come from within? Because our hearts are so good? Does it come from without? through our acts of charity, through our works, through the sacraments. He's shaking his head, no, that's good. It doesn't. No. The righteousness obtained through faith in Christ is an alien righteousness from the one who was born without original sin and who remained perfectly holy. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life and straight alignments to the will of the father in every respect listen including the command to be baptized god had authorized john's baptism so jesus submitted to it that's the primary reason why jesus got baptized there's also a secondary reason why he got baptized by being immersed in the Jordan, Jesus was identifying himself with sinners who were being baptized in response to John's message of repentance. He was identifying with them, as he would later identify himself with sinners on the cross. He also identified them, with them in the waters of baptism. Much more I could say about that, but I've got to move on. The second action in this text is the anointing of the Spirit. Look at verse 10. We've seen the appearing of the Son, now the anointing of the Spirit, or the anointing by the Spirit, verse 10. It starts out with immediately. Immediately. That's Mark's favorite adverb. He uses it numerous times in this gospel, and it's just like a machine gun, rapid fire. This is why Mark is the shortest gospel. He leaves some stuff out. He just wants to get to the quick. He wants to move on from one scene to the next. And it really speaks to Jesus' fast-paced ministry. And so he says, coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens opening. Now here we see a vivid scene where God actively pulled the curtain back And revealed a glimpse of His dwelling place. The language here is the same language used later. Where when Jesus died and He said, It is finished, the curtain torn in two, it's the same word. So God the Father tore open the veil of the sky and revealed heaven. He goes on to say, And the Spirit, like a dove, Descending upon him. Now, this wasn't a literal dove. The Spirit came like a dove in gentleness and peace and purity with dove like qualities. This act served as a visible symbol of divine blessing, authentication, and empowerment at the outset of Jesus' ministry. And now, Jesus is subdued with supernatural strength to go out into the world and begin his mission to seek and to save that which was lost. He is now filled and divinely enabled with the Holy Spirit, and now nothing can stop him from doing what he had been sent to do. And now here's the amazing part of this message. If God incarnate, Jesus Christ, conducted His ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, don't you think that you need the Spirit when you teach Sunday school? If the second member of the triune God ministered with the filling of the Spirit from the beginning, don't you need to be Spirit-filled when you counsel? When you do married life? When you find yourself in circumstances you don't want to be in? How much more do you and I need the Spirit's power? Here's the real kicker. Not only do you need it, you're commanded to have it. Ephesians 5 verse 8 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation would be filled with the Spirit. Now, how do you live a Spirit-filled life? You've heard this language, right? You know of this command to be filled with the Spirit. And if you come from a charismatic background or a charismatic church, you probably hear it all the time, right? There's a lot of talk about being Spirit-led, Spirit-filled. What does that mean? I think that's a necessary question to ask because there are a lot of opinions about this. Is being Spirit-led simply just an emotion? Is it a subjective feeling? Is it some miraculous experience? No, it's not. Take note of four simple ways to be filled with the Spirit. If you'd like to take notes, this is something to write down. If you want to be filled with the Spirit which you do because you want to obey the Scripture, right? Number one, saturate your mind with Scripture. Saturate your mind with Scripture. You cannot live a Spirit-filled life without meditating on the Scripture. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the Word of Christ reside in your thinking. Let it dominate your hearts. And then, you're on the way to living a spirit-filled life. Secondly, be aware of your dependence. Who are you dependent on? Are you dependent on self, man, or God? Ask yourself these questions. Do I trust in God for my provision or in self? Do I trust in God to help me cope? Or do I trust in myself? Do I trust in God for fruit to be evident in our ministry? Or do you trust in self? Does the peace of Christ rule your hearts? Or does the worries of this world dominate your thinking? Be aware of your dependence. A person dependent on self or man cannot live a spirit-filled life. Thirdly, to live a spirit-filled life, deal with your sin. Deal with your sin. Ephesians 4 verse 30 discusses grieving the spirit. That simply means sins of commission. Make God sad. Sins of commission. First Thessalonians 5, verse 19, talks about quenching the spirit. That means sins of omission. Sins of omission. Things that you know you should do but don't. And so if you're harboring any sins of commission or sins of omission... You can't live a spirit-filled life. Fourthly, the fourth way to be spirit-filled is to serve the church and evangelize. The Bible knows nothing. Listen, the Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger hermit Christians. That is a lie. People who think that they can go out under a a tree and have church on their own have been deceived. It's not according to God's will for people to be divorced from the local church. The Bible says very plainly that at the moment of salvation, you were given a spiritual gift to use for the edification of the saints. And for the glory of God. Don't forget that the church is likened to a body with all its members. And just like your physical body needs feet and hands to function properly, the church needs you to serve in order for it to function properly. God has made you to be a foot or a hand or an eye or a mouth or something. And it's God's will for you to use that gift and to function to make the body healthy and mature and able to fulfill the Great Commission. So, those are four ways to be spirit-filled. It's not an emotion. It's not a... Mystical idea Living a spirit-filled life is simple You serve the church and evangelize You deal with your sin Be aware of your dependence And saturate your mind with scripture If you do that, you will live a spirit-filled life Every waking day So we've seen so far the appearing of the sun The anointing by the Spirit. And now, third, let's see the affirmation by the Father. In verse 11, it says, And a voice came out of the heavens You are my beloved Son. This was the audible voice of God the Father. Now, dial in on those first five words a little bit more. You are my beloved Son. Jesus is beloved by the Father, implying a close, unique relationship between the Father and the Son. The word rendered beloved is from the word you've heard before, agape. And it depicts a rich, deep, profound relationship. It's more than like a friendship love. It's rich, it's deep, it's profound. One preacher mentioned that This special relationship between God and Jesus reminds us or informs us that the world was not created because God was lonely and needed mankind to keep him company. God does not need man, right? Because God from eternity past has had a love relationship with the Son and the Spirit and that was and would be totally sufficient. This is what God publicly and audibly declares to the world before Jesus takes one step to the cross to purchase his bride for the glory of himself. He wants the world to know that this is my beloved son. And God the Father gives another affirmation. He says, in you, I am well-pleased. Why why does the father say I'm well pleased with my son Well, it's because he submitted God the father was pleased with jesus because jesus submitted He did not choose his own way He did not rebel. He did not say I have another way He did not choose his own path. God was pleased with his son because he conformed to the will of the Father. Now, could you say with a clean conscience that God is pleased with you today? You must understand that God is not equally pleased with all of us. There are things that we do and things that we think that displease the Lord. Is that not true? But there are also things that you do and think that please him. If you're truly born again, if you're truly one of God's children. And you need to be concerned with pleasing him every day. You know this? Just because you have been saved and your sins are separated as far as the east is from the west, you still should have a godly fear within your soul to constantly be pleasing God. Not only did Jesus set the example, as we see here already, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, commands the church to please God. In Colossians 1, verse 9, he wrote, We have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Why did Paul want his sheep to be filled with wisdom and understanding? Just so we can have theological debates and discussions. So that you will walk in a manner, that means the way you conduct yourself, worthy of the Lord, and to please him in all respects. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we, re- we, we, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. You ought to please God. Now, hopefully you're asking, how can I be pleasing to God in my life on a daily basis? What does that look like? How do I please God? Well, first, be spirit-filled. We talked about that already, didn't we? But if you're going to please God, you know what the most important thing is? Have saving faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Romans 8, 8 says, those who are in the flesh, i.e. unregenerate, cannot please God. So only those who are pleasing to God are those who are saved. That's where it starts. It is possible, even in the darkened mind of some people, to have some kind of desire to want to obey the scripture and yet still lack true faith obedience to the scripture without saving faith does not please god second if you want to be pleasing to god be a simple evangelist 1 corinthians 121 it says god was well pleased listen this is what i love about the gospel God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Brothers and sisters, remember that the gospel message is so simple, people think it's stupid. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. Why would God kill his own son for people that hate him? Why would God do that? It is a crushing blow to your pride to accept the fact that you can't save yourself. It is a crushing blow to the pride of men to think that we need to be saved from hell because we think we're so good. It was foolish in Paul's day. And it's foolish to people today. So the implication here should encourage you to be a simple evangelist, to do what Paul did. You don't have to be an ivory tower theologian. You don't have to be well educated. You don't need a Bible degree. You don't need formal theological education. You don't have to be a professor. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a prolific author or a blogger with a following. Just preach the simple, stupid message of the gospel. That pleases God. Just preach the pure, simple, straightforward gospel. Preach it often and preach it boldly. Preach it to whomever you can, whenever you can, as often as you can, and let God sort it out. So if you want to be pleasing to God, have saving faith, examine yourself, evangelize. And third, a third way to please God, according to the Scripture, is Hebrews thirteen sixteen, which says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Now, this really encapsulates everything, doesn't it? Simply put, other than obeying the command to repent and believe in the gospel... Other than the command to make disciples. The highest good you can do is to obey Christ and his word. The Bible is not merely a book about what God has done. Listen to this very carefully. The New Testament is primarily a polemic. Meaning. It's primarily written to correct bad thinking and bad action the new testament is chock full of imperatives commands for us to obey so when people ask good preachers why do you do so much exhortation why do you do so much correction why do you are always calling for people to change why are you rebuking people why are you calling out bad theology well because the bible does You cannot read the New Testament and walk away thinking that this book is only about how much Jesus loves the world. It's about correcting Christians and sometimes very sternly, doesn't it? So we must, if we're going to be pleasing to God, we must obey the Scripture. We can't possibly lay them all out right now, though I think that would be an awesome project to list every command in scripture but trust me when i say that to do good in the hebrews 13:16 sense is to be concerned with obeying all that christ's word has revealed third john 4 i have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. That means that God has no greater joy when He sees us obeying His Word, walking in the truth. Now, we have just looked at this Lord's Day at a very significant event in the life of Christ. The unveiling of the Messiah, according to God's will, consisted of his appearing in the wilderness, his anointing by the Spirit, and the affirmation by the Father. This event was the beginning of Christ's ministry. And from this point on, he is going to be launched into the world into some intense incomprehensible spiritual warfare. And from here on out, we're going to see what Christ did, how he did it, and it is going to change us. This exposition of Mark will change you if you desire to be spirit-filled, if you desire to please God, and if you want to To know Christ more. In response to this message, I pray that you will see a greater need to trust in the righteousness of Christ. I pray that you will live a spirit-filled life. I pray that you will want to please God as the Father was pleased with Jesus. And I pray that you will generate a renewed zeal. for the truth let's pray father thank you so much for this time and your word i pray that all of us will see the need for your spirit as we have just seen how jesus required it how much more do we need it lord I pray for your spirit to convict us, to encourage us and to give us boldness. I pray that we will live a spirit-filled life and to please you in all ways. We love you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.